Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and a warm festive welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's that time of year when we start looking at the history behind our festive moments. And what could be more Christmassy than St. Nicholas? St. Nick. Also known as Nicholas of Myra or Nicholas of Bari, so-called because the Italians stole his corpse, as you'll hear, and relocated it in Bari. He lived at the end of the 3rd and the beginning of the 4th century AD, so towards the beginning of the Roman Empire's Christian journey, we don't know very much about him. We think his parents died of an epidemic when he was a child. He was affluent, and he used his inheritance to help the poor and the sick before becoming a bishop. Much of what we think we know after that is hagiography. It's legend and myth. And to talk me through it, to help me make sense of it all, is the one and only, the very brilliant, Eleanor Yardiger. She's the host of the smash hit history hit podcast, Gone Medieval. She is a brilliant poster on the social medias. She's got a website, goingmedieval.com, which is always fun to read. And she's here with festive stories of St. Nick, from Flanders to Prague. And all these stories seem to have one thing in common. People love to raise a glass to the memory of St. Nick, and not just on Christmas Eve. This is a man who would eventually inspire the Santa Claus story, become a global rock star. Not bad for an orphan from southern Turkey. Enjoy. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Eleanor, good to have you on the podcast. Dan, you can't keep me away. I'm just, I keep coming back. So who is this guy? What's going on? Who the heck's St. Nick? Okay, so in the first place, this is a real guy, okay? This is an actual factual man, which isn't to say, you know, that that really matters when we're talking about saints, because like, I don't really care if St. George was real or not, right? Like, he's cool. He killed a dragon. That's all that matters to me. But I can tell you that St. Nicholas of Myra as he is known, was a real guy, okay? We even know his birthday, which is the 15th of March, uh, 270, and he died on the 6th of December, 343. And this is uh, one of the big reasons why we kind of associate him with Christmas now is because he's got a December feast day and part of his story is that he gives things away, right? So these are the things we definitely, definitely know. He was the Bishop of Mira, which is why he's St. Nicholas of Mira. We know that for a fact, And so he kind of grew up in the Greek part of the Roman Empire. So it's Asia Minor, it's Turkey now. But at the time, you know, it was just Rome. So, (laughs) you know, it is what it is. And there are kind of like varying historical disputes about like him having been at the first Council of Nicaea. 
So this is a really nerdy thing. That happened in 325, and basically all of the bishops and patriarchs kind of got together to debate this heresy called Arianism, which is basically saying like there's a hierarchy to the Trinity, and then everyone decided that there wasn't a hierarchy to the Trinity, right? And there's some possibly apocryphal stories that he slapped one of the Arians at the Council of Nicaea. And, you know, and, so, and then it, like in the later Middle Ages, that got turned into he punched Arius at the Council of Nicaea. Did that happen? Probably not. Do I like a story about a saint who punched another man at, in the face? Yes, I do. So, you know, like I'm just, I want to keep that one, even though it's probably not true. But this is like, you know, very late antique, normal kind of functions of the church where you, you get together and you have a big debate in order to decide what we mean. Because I don't know, you say late antique, sort of early medieval. This is a period where they are literally working out what Christianity is. This might seem strange to us now, but they're going, oh, should there be like four people in the Trinity or two or like this? Yeah, is, this oh, is- completely. And this is a huge big deal. Like a, a very, very popular over in the Western Roman Empire is Arianism. Like, and it keeps going for a few hundred years, even after the Council of Nicaea, right? Uh, where people are like, no, nah, I like a hierarchy. It doesn't really matter what anyone says because, you know, think of Christianity kind of like jazz. You know, everyone's still kind of like noodling around trying to figure out what the beat is in the late antique period, you know? So maybe St. Nicholas was there. He shows up on longer lists of attendees, but not shorter lists. And that might be that he kind of gets added in later because people like it or not. But These are kind of like the things that we know about him, all right? And those are the actual historical facts. But he's just mad popular. People absolutely love St. Nicholas, right? And so he gets this great legend, or, you know, as we say in the trade, hagiography, that builds and builds and builds across the medieval period. And he starts out really popular, especially in the East. So with what we now call the Orthodox Church, people love St. Nicholas. They're like, yes, like he's almost immediately sainted. Like, that's our guy. We're keeping him really, really wonderful. You know, he's so popular with the Orthodox Church that like in some, you know, Russian Orthodox things, you commemorate him every Thursday along with the apostles. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah. And then there's our boy, St. Nick. Like, get him in. Great guy. But the genesis of interest in St. Nicholas in Western Europe is that some Italians kind of show up in Asia Minor, uh, around about in 1087. You know, it's a rather time when a lot of people are kind of going through Byzantium on their way to the Holy Land for, you know, sure, some religious reasons. But who knows, on your way through, you might uh, steal the corpse of a saint. You know, a little souvenir. Why not steal the corpse of St. Nicholas and take it back to Barry in Italy? Much to the chagrin of the good people of Mira, who were like, did you just take our patron saint and Italians are like, well, y- you, you asked us to come. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like, this is, this is payment. It's like, if you're going to come back from the Holy Land, you want some kind of relics. And they're like, baby, we got relics. So from then on, you have um, a big locus of worship of him, especially um, in Barry at the Basilica of St. Nicholas, which is still there. And then the Venetians take it up and the French take it up and the Bohemians take it up and the German, and it just kind of explodes. What is it with like venerating saints and the kind of popularity of that? What's the vibe there? Why do people take it up? Is it fun? Do people like the stories? What's going on? Or does he deliver, does he deliver miracles to those people? I mean, yes, is the answer to all those things, right? So first of all, it seems like people take it up because they like it. 
and it's nice to tell different stories. But part of the reason that people really react to the saints is like, you know, God is divine, right? And even Jesus is divine, right? Because he, sure, he was like hanging out as a man for a while, but these are, this is like actual divinity, right? Saints are incredibly holy people, and they are now in the presence of God, right? But they're humans. So they really understand what it's like to be a human. They really understand the kind of varying pressures that there are in the world and how difficult it is really to be holy. So if you're a little afraid of God or um, you are like, I don't know, the big man's busy, what you can do is kind of talk to saints instead of God. And then the hope is that the saints will put in a word with the big guy and then that will help you out. Right. So think about it like, you know, you don't want to escalate all the way to the boss, maybe, but like you asked to speak to a manager first. And saints are also seen as having like specialties. Right. So if you've got like one particular issue that you need seen to, then it's like, oh, well, I can go to St. Nicholas for that because, you know, he's got some miracles associated with it. So he's like, the patron saint of sailors, the patron saint of soldiers, the patron saint of bakers. They're like, I mean, this man barely doesn't have, you know, a patronage somewhere. But so if you're a sailor, you're in a storm, you pray to St. Nicholas. Very relatable. And you know what, Eleanor, I like this. I was talking to my kids about this the other day when they were watching footballers coming off the pitch and they were like, you know, thanking God for the goal. Or We did discuss as a family, like, it is a bit hardcore going straight to the big guy. It's the second half of Nottingham Forest versus Bournemouth, and you're going to God, or you've lost your wallet. You're like, I, I could use some help here. I don't think I need to get God involved right at the moment, you know. But definitely, a kind of useful local holy figure makes total sense because there is a smattering of the divine. But it's like realistically, the creator of the universe doesn't really care where my lost wallet is. Exactly, but Saint Nicholas might. Part of the reasons why you pick someone out as a patron saint is you look at things from the saint's life and you go, oh, well, if he did that while he was alive, then he'll probably still see to sit things that are in that arena after his death. So um, he's a patron saint of sailors because he was allegedly sailing to the Holy Land on pilgrimage and a big storm brewed up and he stood up in the boat and commanded the waves to quiet down and they did it, Right. So, you know, if he would do it for himself and the other sailors on the boat, why wouldn't he do it for you, like some sailor in the Mediterranean? And indeed, like one of the big places we see a cults of St. Nicholas crop up is usually around where there are a lot of sailors. So it's huge, for example, in the low countries, everything's underwater. So you're sailing constantly. So everybody loves St. Nicholas because if you get in a boat and you're feeling a little dodgy, then he can help you out. The next time... I'm off Hurst Spit in a southwesterly gale, and there's a massive ebb tide pouring out of the Solent. St. Nick's name will never be far from my lips. You listen to Dan Snow's history, talking to Eleanor Yarniger about St. Nick. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Was there any persecution? Did he have a reasonably nice tenure as a, a leader of the Christian community in Asia Minor, or was he persecuted? It's been alleged that he was persecuted during the persecutions of Diocletian, which was rather the style at the time. And it's not unbelievable. We don't have any records of it, but the legend is that he gets thrown in jail. And if you are the Bishop of Myrna and, you know, a particularly antagonistic emperor comes along, sure, you know, that's completely within the range of possibility. And then the legend is he then gets let out of jail by the Emperor Constantine, you know, who eventually converts, right? And is is absolutely fine. There's also, you know, the story about him slapping someone at the Council of Nicaea. There's also a story that everyone is like, well, you really shouldn't be slapping people. And he kind of gets his mitre take it away from him and he gets thrown in jail. And then his boy Jesus and Mary show up that night and he says, guys, I'm in here simply for slapping an Aryan. And they say, oh no, that won't do. And they let him out of jail and they give him back his mitre and everything. And everyone goes, wow, amazing direct intervention from Jesus and Mary. You know, again, historicity on that one low, but I really, really like it. Right. So these are the major persecutions in his life, it seems. But, you know, it's not all roses. It's a difficult time. Towards the end of his life, one of his other miracles is that there is a famine going on and a big grain ship pulls into harbor and it's headed to Constantinople, you know, because in Constantinople, they have to have all this grain brought in to feed the imperial court and also they give grain away in the streets. And Nicholas is like, hey, guys, uh, my boys are starving in the streets. What are we going to do here? Help us out. And the sailors are like, uh, like we'll get in trouble if we get over to Constantinople and the grain is light. And St. Nicholas says, no, don't, don't, don't worry about that. You know, just like unload some, I promise you, you get to Constantinople, everything will be fine. They get to Constantinople and lo and behold, the grain is no lighter than it was when they stopped. And St. Nicholas managed to get enough grain off the boat that it fed everyone in the city for two years. And there was enough for seed. 
there are all kinds of famines. Like famine is one of the big things that crops up, which is, again, not unbelievable. It's kind of like relatively dry part of the world. But it does connect to this particular story, which is one of my favorite St. Nicholas stories, which also doesn't crop up until the late medieval period. But in this same famine, there is a very bad butcher. Okay, and it gets very Sweeney Todd very quickly. And he lures three little boys into his house and then kills them. And then he puts them into a like salting barrel and he's like prepared to cure them like prosciutto or something. And uh, St. Nicholas, like his spidey sense tingles. He's like, oh, something's afoot. And he goes in there, opens the barrel and finds the corpses of the three little boys and he resurrects them from the dead. And this is a massively popular story in the late medieval period. People love this story. And it suddenly starts cropping up everywhere. So you'll see pictures of St. Nicholas with uh, three little naked boys coming out of a barrel who are all praying. And he's like, ta-da! You know, like the prestige or whatever. And people like this because, you know, the 14th century had gone through rather a bad famine. You know, so this idea that there is a saint who's involved in kind of like stopping the worst excesses of that is good. There are all these rumors that people were resorting to cannibalism during the Great Famine. Do we know if that actually happened? Not really, but people talk about it. So this is the sort of thing where it seems like they then retrofitted something they wanted off of a saint. They're like, well, I like St. Nicholas already, so who am I going to pray to in this famine? Bada bing, bada boom, story about three boys. Funnily, because everyone would then see this thing of like these three boys, then he subsequently becomes the patron saint of brewers because everyone saw the barrel and was like, I don't know, something about brewing? Uh, Sure. So again, you mentioned like these stories become wildly popular. Is that because that is the cultural currency of the day? Why don't stories about... William Wallace becomes super popular. Is it that just when you and I are hanging out in the alehouses and in the fields, we are reaching for biblical and religious stories? That's what we talk about. That's what we're engaging with. Like today, people are watching Marvel movies. Yeah. I mean, I think that's quite apt because it's hard to explain to us now because we see religion as incredibly unfun. How you get forced to go to mass on Sunday or something like that. But medieval people love this stuff. You know, for them, the idea of a really fun night out is it's like, oh, there's an itinerant preacher who's come through town. Let's all go hear a sermon. And they love that. Like for them, that's very, very fun. And so you can tell these stories of St. Nicholas, but also they can get told by professional storytellers in the persons of clergy, preachers. So they can tell you that from the pulpit and everyone gets really engaged and they're like, oh, yeah. That's, that's really good. That's a really exciting kind of story that I can apply to my life. And he makes for really good art and people really engage with art a lot. So art is incredibly important in a kind of non-literate world. And if you have in your church, for example, a statue of St. Nicholas or, um, you know, a painting of him on an altar, this is like one of the stories that you kind of tell yourself. I mean, think about it like, you know, anyone who has uh, children, you know, how they always reach for that one pop-up book over and over again. It's like, what if you only had the one pop-up book? You know, that becomes the story that everyone likes to tell. And, and they feel a real personal relationship there. They really do feel like there is this guy up in heaven looking out for them that they can go to who does these incredible things. And speaking of the incredible things, what's going on with the Father Christmas connection? The giving nice stuff down chimneys. So it starts off with a pretty interesting story about there's a family who they seem to be of the nobility and they've fallen on hard times. 
So they've got absolutely no money. And the father's got three daughters who are all of marriageable age. But nobody will marry them because he doesn't have enough money for a dowry. So he's like, well, girls, I guess it's time to go on the game. So, which is rather the thing in the Eastern Roman Empire, you know, brothels abound. And, you know, from a Christian aspect, you know, the relationship to sex work is tricky. Where it's like, well, you got to have it because otherwise everyone will just be too horny to function. But it's not good, right? And it's definitely not great if it's not your first choice. And the girls don't really want to go work at a brothel. So anyway, St. Nicholas gets wind of this and he's like, no, absolutely not. And so at night when the family's asleep, one day he goes and he throws a sack full of gold in the window. They wake up the next morning, they find a sack full of gold. The father says, yes, incredible. I can use this as a dowry. And the first daughter gets married. Second night, same thing. Throw in the the thing of gold. Second daughter gets married. She's got a dowry with that. On the third night, the dad stays up all night because he's like, who's, who is this who is throwing gold through the window? And he finds that St. Nicholas is there with enough money for the dowry for the third daughter. And St. Nicholas is like, homie, do not tell anybody that I did this. I'm like swearing you to secrecy, which must not have worked out because, you know, here I am telling the story, uh, you know, 1800 years later. But this becomes kind of the origin of, oh, St. Nicholas gives things to children, right? Little uh, light on the good vibes (laughs) in this particular one, but it kind of comes about, there's this idea that, you know, you find little gifts, And if you're from a tradition that celebrates St. Nicholas still, as I am, it's a really big check thing. You basically get this mini Christmas, right? So uh, you put shoes or stockings outside your door and you get little things like tchotchkes, as we would say in Czech, candy and things of this nature. And if you ever have the chance, I very much recommend going to Prague in the first place. Jot that down. But if you're going to do it, a great night to show up is on December 5th. Okay, so it's like St. Nicholas Eve, because St. Nicholas's feast day is on December 6th, which is when he died. But St. Nicholas Eve is like a massive party. So I'm talking big stages with dancing. There's fireworks, like everyone's out in the squares, you know, having a great time drinking mulled wine. And everyone dresses up like St. Nicholas and angels and demons. And it's kind of like the, like in the German thing, you have like Knecht Ruprecht and stuff, who's like the bad guy who like gives you coal or whatever. So it's like the demon, if the kids are naughty, will spank you. But if kids are good, then the angel gives them treats. And it's very difficult to explain because it's very idiosyncratic, but it's like a huge party and it's all connected to that. Did it survive communism out of interest? It did. So this was allowed, like sometimes they would crack down on it and be like, it's a little bit too religious. But then on other times people would be like, hey, hey, party. And it was sort of like, "Mm, there's ebbs and flows with it where you would get away with it a little bit more, uh, not in Prague. So like if you're in Olomouc or something, it's like, what are they going to do? Right. You can't keep the peasants down. But it's one of those things where it's incredibly intrinsic. And this is true of a lot of places in Europe, you know, who still have celebrations. So, you know, it's big in France, in Germany, places like that. But Czechs go in for it super, super heavily, you know, and it's probably not as heavy as Russians who are like, oh, it's Thursday again. Time to St. Nick up. But eventually this whole thing, right, of the gift giving and the naughty and nice, and I don't know, it's in December, that kind of gets smushed together in especially kind of American contexts 
But that's because of people from the lowlands. So people who were Dutch, people who were Belgian, again, they have a really big celebration there where all the sailors would go down to the harbor to celebrate St. Nicholas Day. And all the sailors in the lowlands, it's like, well, that's everybody. Okay, so, um, and as a result, they would have these markets set up called St. Nicholas Markets. And when you kind of come home through town, you would collect little presents and bring them home to the kids or something like that. So when Dutch people settle New Amsterdam, they bring this sort of tradition over. And for them, like a St. Nick that turns into like St. Nick that turns into Santa as we kind of know him in the English vernacular now. And it comes very specifically kind of through the Dutch transmission in that way. The central message there has moved a fair bit from him helping to stop these three young women engage in sex work. But just to come back to that story, was that in any way like vaguely contemporary or is that a medieval hagiographic sort of legend? This kind of starts showing up for the first time around in stories from the 8th century. Okay. So a few hundred years later. <laughs> it was. I mean, that's the thing. We don't really have any of his biographies. We know he's sainted right away, but we don't have any biographies of him until around about the 8th century. And that's when the first big one comes out. And then that gets subsequently added to and added to in order to include all of these other things. But that is one of the earlier inclusions. So, you know, punching Arius, that's a lot later. The salted children, that's a lot later. Earlier ones are like the calming of storms, the saving the girls. There are some legends also about him basically getting three generals who were wrongly accused of crimes off of execution. You know, so he's also like a patron saint of prisoners. And these things kind of just get added to all the time. And it's because he is already in the public imagination. And they're like, I don't know, who, who does this seem likely that it would be? And you can just kind of hook that on St. Nicholas, who you already got and you already quite like, I think. Isn't it interesting that for nearly 2,000 years, St. Nicholas has been co-opted by different groups in different places and to do different things. Now he's a strange Coca-Cola-created giver of plastic crap. He's just this useful piece of content that we all dress up and take from in different ways. Yeah, it's really interesting because for whatever reason, people just love him. So for example, you know, St. George, he's one of those and everybody loves St. George and St. George is, you know, the patron saint of a million countries. So St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas is one of those guys where everyone is like, yes, we're having him. The Maltese love him. And, you know, the Italians love him and ev everybody just likes him. And to be fair, he seems like this really good kind of friend to regular people, right? You know, like that's his whole shtick is that, sure, he knows hoity-toity things about, you know, Christian dogma. And he's involved in that fight. Absolutely. He is a rich guy who becomes bishop, but he does all that stuff people love, which is like give away all his worldly goods, help out the poor. And that is a really, really big deal, like the helping out poor people, helping out people who've been wrongly accused of crimes. You know, seeing the side of the underdog, that's something that's incredibly important. I mean, now even, but, you know, in the medieval context, even more so. So the idea of a bishop who genuinely really cares about the little guy, that's incredibly seductive. And I think he is a lot like a superhero, right? So it's like, you know, Superman's going to come along and save you, guy on the street who's you know, getting mugged or whatever. St. Nicholas does that same thing. It's the same function. I mean, you can ask somebody for help and they're like, yeah, actually it's good to be nice to poor people. 
That's the lesson to end on. Eleanor, are you in the Czech Republic over the uh, festive period? I am going to be earlier on, yes. So I'm trying to make it back for Mikolash, as we say. So. <laughs> okay, well, listen, everyone follow Eleanor's Instagrams and Twitter as ever because uh, she posts great updates. Thank you very much, Eleanor, for coming on the pod. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.